and worshiping alongside of his people, with his people. What a blessing. So many things that we take for granted in our lives, and I think one of them is that uh, God has, has brought us to himself and brought us to a family. And so every time we meet together on Sunday morning to worship, we worship as a family. We pray to our Father in heaven, and we do it alongside of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I pray that this privilege does not uh, sit on us lightly. We started just uh, before with singing that song as we prepare to receive God's word. An emphasis in that song, that prayer of St. Augustine, is on the Holy Spirit. And that's who we need this morning to, to guide us. Because apart from him, we can't do anything. Apart from him, there is no preaching. Apart from him, there is no heart that becomes turned towards God. It's one of the great truths that we as a church believe very strongly, and that is unless the Holy Spirit awakens a heart, unless the Holy Spirit does an act of creation or recreation in a human heart, that person is not going to turn to God in faith. Only by God's grace, the working of the Holy Spirit, do we come to love God and fear God and worship him as he is. So praise God for his spirit. His spirit is with us this morning. We know that because he promises us that when we come together like this to worship, he is present. We can know that. We can believe that, which means we can anticipate and expect that as we gather together this morning, we're not merely doing something natural. That is walking on our two legs here, meeting together, sitting in our seats, uh, but that the Holy Spirit is very much active and alive among us. And we pray that he will do his work in each of our hearts. So last week, we began talking about one of the most foundational ideas in the entire Bible. Probably one of those texts or one of those ideas that, that gets the most attention as we think about what it means to be a Christian. And we have it here on this side, on this wall, in that poster, this idea of being made in God's image, that human beings are made in God's image, the imago dei, made in the image of God. And one of the things that's very important about this, this idea that we started to look at last week is that every person, every person is made in the image of God. So let me just start by asking this question before we go any further this morning, and it's this, whom do you exclude from this category of image bearer? <laughs> we do this. We do this. We, we have people in our lives or maybe people that we hear about or see or know that we would say uh, these people really aren't in God's image. We may not say that and we know kind of academically and intuitively and in an abstract way, we know that all people are made in God's image. But my question is, who do you exclude from this category of image bearer? Even the vilest sinner is made in the image of God. Even after the fall, we know that every single human being is made in God's image. Though that image is distorted, deformed, marred, infected by sin on every level, intellect, will, affections, every aspect of that person, of all of us, 
infected with sin, totally depraved, and yet after the fall, we can read in Genesis 9-6, as I read last week, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. What does that tell us? That even though, as we get in Genesis 9, that, that men's hearts are turned away from God, every inclination of our hearts being wicked, that's still the case. Yet, it is the case that human beings remain image bearers of the living God. James 3, 9, post-fall, with it we bless our, talking about the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. I cited this last week as well. It tells us that we are still, even the, the most lost, vile sinner is still made in the image and likeness of God. So maybe before we go any further this morning, you just need to be reminded of that. Maybe as we go back to work this week, maybe as we go uh, begin to engage with some people wh whom we haven't had much favor towards in the past, maybe we can begin to do that in a fresh way as we consider who they are as image bearers. And we are introduced to this doctrine of imago dei. We are introduced to this. In Genesis 1, 26 to 31, which is the passage that you see, at least the first couple of verses which you see in the poster over there. So just to give you a little context, if you haven't been with us up to this point, so we are in a series on Genesis. Yes, all 50 chapters. We're going to make our way through. And so today we come to the end of the first, so we only have 49 chapters to go. And I can't tell you the pace, but I do know that early, early chapters tend to move a little more slowly. Uh, there's just so much here, but we are in a series on the book of Genesis. That is what we typically do here as a church as we go through uh, passages of Scripture or we go through books of Scripture and we go verse by verse studying God's Word as it unfolds for us. It's one of the ways that we as a church sit underneath God's Word as opposed to sitting above it which means I could come in here and I could say, okay, image of God. I'm gonna preach a sermon on the image of God. Let's just go through all the Bible and just pull a bunch of verses together and let me just sort of form it up for you and put it all together and give you a picture of, of what I think the image of God is based on scripture and everything else that I can come across. That's not our approach. Our approach is to say, let's let scripture unfold for us. Let's let it tell us what it's saying and move through it. So we're working through the book of Genesis and we have been looking at God's six days of creation in Genesis chapter one. So just to give you a little bit of review here, <clears throat> the first three days that we looked at, days one to three, <clears throat> we entitled that forming towards production because it's basically during those first three days that God is forming time and space. He's forming the various spheres into which he will put things. So we see God Beginning to, he forms day and night. He forms those two uh, temporal spheres. And then he begins to form spatial spheres vertically and horizontally. So he divides the water vertically. So that there's water, say, in the clouds and there's waters on the earth. And then he divides the waters horizontally, gathers them up into seas so that dry land appears. But that's not the end result of the first three days. The end result of the first three days is not just land, but it's land that is producing vegetation. 
We know that God is moving towards making his world habitable. And so that's where we come to days four to six, where we get fullness towards dominion. So days one to three is forming towards production. That is a productive earth. And then in the latter three days, we have fullness towards dominion. God fills the skies with uh, planetary or, or with uh, heavenly bodies, with the sun and the moon and the stars, filled the skies with these so that we can look up into the heavens and see them for signs and seasons and days and years and dividing permanently between day and night. We see God bringing creatures into the sea and into the air, sky, the birds in the sky, and then we see God bringing animals onto the earth. And then we get to these verses, verse 26 and following. And this is where we see a culmination of all of God's work. So all of the forming and all of the filling that God has been doing throughout Genesis chapter 1 is culminating in verses 26 to 31. And we know this from two little clues. I mentioned these last week. So we come into this passage, and at the very beginning, we see these words, let us. Up to this point, it's been, let there be, let there be, let there be. And here, we get let us. We know that something climactical is happening. And then we get to the end of it in verse 31, and it says, very good. Up to this point, God has looked at his work, day one, good, day two, good, day three, good, and so on and so forth. Good, good, good. But then we come to the end of day six, and God declares, after creating human beings, that it is very good good. So this is the culmination, the apex, the pinnacle of all of God's creation. And last week, we began looking at what this text says about God's culminating work, human beings. And there are five things that we began to address last week as we look at these verses, 26 to 31. Five things we resemble, we represent, we relate we reproduce and we rely. So we looked at the first three last week. We resemble God. And two of the things that I mentioned there were the fact that we have a mind. Throughout Genesis 1, we see God operating as an intelligence. He is intelligently and wisely making, forming, dividing, and separating, and so forth, classifying, naming. We see this with man as well. Man has a mind like God is an intelligence. Human beings are intelligent creatures. And we see that human beings are moral creatures. God speaks and we hear him speak. He gives commands to us. Just as God has a sense for right and wrong and good and bad, so too do human beings. We represent, we looked at last week how God has made us royal representatives over the creation. This recurring idea of dominion. You have dominion over the earth and subdue it, that we are God's representatives who rule. And then we saw last week as we come to this idea of we relate, that we are persons who relate to other persons. We are persons who relate to God, persons who relate to one another in various spheres of life. So that's what we covered last week and today we're going to finish this passage. We're going to finish chapter one. We're going to finish the six days of creation by looking at these two final truths, and that is we reproduce and we rely. So if you will, please go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> we'll be reading Genesis 1, 26 to 31. 
This is God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord, ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we interpret, understand, as we hear his word preached, and as I preach that God would be with us, he would help us uh, to, to see clearly what is here, and that the Holy Spirit would do uh, an application work in each of our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would take the truths of Scripture, the implications that come out of it, and that he would in very incisive, surgical ways that he would apply his truth to each one of our hearts, because that's what the Holy Spirit does, and that's what we're asking him to do this morning. We're not just here to hear something, we're not just here to do church, we're here to be transformed by the living God, and that's what we're going to ask him to do with faith. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, you are a glorious creator God. You are the, the glorious creator God. There is none besides you. Father, we praise you that you have made us, each of us. You have made us in Adam, in a sense, and you have brought us individually into being in our own time, through our mothers and our fathers, and you have brought us into spiritual being through Christ our Lord. Father, we thank you that we sit here this morning as Christians, those who are among us who are trusting you, who have been reborn. We are here this morning by your grace. And Father, we praise you that you have made us and remade us in the image of your Son. And Father, we ask this morning that you would continue that work of remaking us, for we know that you work in us according to your good pleasure. We know that you have prepared before the foundations of the world good works for us to walk in, that we would glorify you, that, that people would see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. So Father, we want to serve you, we know that that want to serve you, that heart to serve you is from you, that you yourself have given us this desire. And Father, we know that as we come to your word that we need your spirit to increase that desire, to 
take away that lethargy and that sloth and distractedness that we often have. Father, and to replace that with zeal for Christ. So, Father, we ask that you would do that through the sermon this morning, that you would do that through the singing. Thank you for our band who have led us in worship to you, who have brought us uh, through these words into a celebration of your glory and grace. Father, we pray that this will continue throughout our service and that your spirit will use everything done here today to draw sinners to yourself. Father, we are so desperately in need of your son. And we, we know that it is probable that there are people in this room right now hearing my voice who are undone and lost who do not know you, whose sins are not forgiven, who are under your judgment and who will stand before you one day, at least as it stands now, in their sins. So Father, we pray that you would undo that, that you would be merciful, that you'd be gracious to everyone in this building today, Father. We pray that you would work in the lives of our children as they are back there listening to your word being taught. Father, would you use the teachers Would you enlighten their hearts to see Christ glorified? Would you be with us all, Father, today as we worship you? Would we do it in spirit and truth? And would we we be conformed into the image of your Son? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is Days 4 to 6, Fullness Towards Dominion. This is part three. This is the third sermon on these verses. So rather than take human beings and break that out as a sermon, what I want you to get is very much the sense that days four to six hang together and that verses 26 to 31 are really a climax to the whole creation narrative of chapter one, but especially to these latter three days. So that's why I have entitled it, uh, as you see above. So let's look at number four. We reproduce, we've seen, we resemble, we represent, we relate. Now we see that we produce. I want you to look again at verses 27 to 28. This is where we're going to sort of hone in on. This is what we're gonna hone in on uh, for a moment here. Verses 27, 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The theme of reproduction is clear from the words in verse 28. It's kind of reiterated in three ways. It's presented to us really in three uh, in, in three, with three specific words. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Three different ideas that give us essentially one big idea, and that is people the world. Fill it up with human beings, which means reproduce human beings and fill the world with them. So as we try to wrap our minds around this culminating work of God on day six called human, that's what God is making here on day six, at the end of day six, human. As we try to wrap our minds around what, it, what is it that God is making? How does this thing work? What, what is intrinsic to this, this, this creature called human? As we try to do that, we see that reproduction is one of the major features. 
It's one of the major themes that we're introduced to, or you could say one of the major aspects of this creation that God does at the end of day six called human being. So what does this passage tell us about this aspect of humanity? Now, there's a ton of things that I could say at this point. And this is uh, one of the reasons I want to reiterate something I said last week, and that is when you come to a passage like this, there is the temptation to just bounce all over the Bible. I mean, there's so many things. You could do sort of a, a, every systematic theology that you would ever uh, pick up to read would have a pretty lengthy section on the image of God. And this would be a foundational passage if there'd be so many other things to consider. It's not my intention to do sort of a comprehensive a presentation or understanding of, of what is meant by the image of God or of what we find about human reproduction and so forth all throughout the Bible. My desire at this point is to stick really close to the text and let other passages illuminate what we find here, but to tread very carefully and very closely to just what we see here. Because remember this, we're trying to lay a foundation. Not we, but God in Genesis 1 is laying a foundation for all the other teaching that will come in the rest of the Bible. So from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, there's going to be much that we find about human beings, how we are made and how we function and what we are to do and be. But a passage like this gives us those basic foundational points that we then rise up from as we go throughout the rest of of scripture. So what I want to do is take the words that we have here and try to fill out a little bit some basics as we lay this foundation uh, for our own lives and also as we perhaps lay a good fresh foundation for us as we engage with our culture, as we engage with people in our culture every day at work or in our families. So what does this passage tell us about this aspect, this reproductive aspect of humanity? Number one, the first thing, and I haven't put these on a slide, but you can write these down if you would like. This is the first uh, thing that I think this passage tells us about this aspect of humanity. First, human reproduction is God's good gift. Just on a very basic level, reproduction is God's good gift. How do we know that? We just inferring that? Are we just throwing that on there? No, there's a, there's a word here that tells us very clearly that this is God's good gift. And the word is blessed. Everything that we go on to read in verse 28 about reproduction, about this multiplying and filling the earth and so forth, all of it flows out of God's blessing. It says, look at what it says, and God blessed them. And then we go on to see that reproduction flows out of God's blessing, which means that every stage as we understand what human reproduction is, where it's from, how it, what governing principles there are about it, that it derives from a divine blessing. So let me just draw out two very basic implications. If that's the case we see here, coming out of God's blessing, there are two basic implications. The first is that human reproduction and the reproduced, the humans that are reproduced, should never be understood in a negative light, just on a basic level. 
that tells us that any worldview or any attitude that looks upon human reproduction and looks upon children with a negative disposition, with negativity, is automatically stamped out by the Christian worldview. That at the base of the Christian worldview is this kind of dignity, this infused dignity and goodness and positivity of human reproduction and children. So I'm not at this point going to get into all of the nuanced arguments about uh, contraception or anything of that sort, but what I will say is this. At the very basic, this denies, what we find here, this denies a culture of contraception and a culture of abortion. At the very base, not that, it, not that it tells us that contraception in and of itself in every case, in every form is wrong, but what it does tell us is that a culture of contraception against conception and a culture against bringing children into the world is not part of the Christian worldview. Whatever one is going to make of the details, whatever one is going to conclude regarding specific forms of contraception, we, I think, can conclude those basic things. So positivity rather than negativity. I think that's one very basic implication that we have here. Secondly, another implication that we have of this is gratitude. Very, very simple. Gratitude. Psalm 127, three to five says this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So let me ask this question of you. Do you see children as part of God's blessing? Do you see children as a good gift from God? Now, undoubtedly, it's the case as parents, especially parents of maybe two categories, well, three categories, probably every category, but especially parents of three categories. So let's say the parents of the, of the little ones who are just into everything, and maybe you have four, five, six, seven, I don't know how many of them, but the little kids that are into everything, you get no sleep, life is rushed, intense, you maybe don't get to see your spouse very much, just in passing. You don't get a lot of me time. It's just busy. It's one category. I think another category are parents with teenagers. So maybe this is not the case for you. It was the case for my parents when I was a teenager, is that it's just very stressful. It's very difficult because they're beginning to, to, to form some sort of independence. What is that independence moving into? What are they after? What are they pursuing? What are the idols of their hearts? How are they being deceived by the culture? Who are they hanging out with? Who are they dating? All these questions that are freaking you out as a parent. And so you're just stressed about these things. Or maybe the parent of a grown child. I know that this is something that we have in our church across the board. We have a number of folks who are in their 50s, maybe early 60s, who have one or two or however many children who are adults who are not walking with the Lord. And how difficult that is to be, to, to see that they, they're no longer under your care. They're no longer under your supervision. And they have gone off into the world and they do not know Christ. They are in their sins. They do not have God's word governing their 
lives and how stressful and difficult that can be. And here's what I want to submit to you is at the very basic level, what we have here is, I think, a call in the midst of all of that anxiety, all of that stress, and all of that negativity to say, praise God for my child, even if they drive me crazy, and even if life is difficult, praise God. And not to just do this in theory, not to just say, well, of course I love my children, of course I'm grateful for them, but to do this in practice. Are you functionally grateful for your children? Or are they an inconvenience, an annoyance, someone who's stressing you out, someone who's making your life difficult? What we find here is that human reproduction and the product of it is a blessing, a gift from the Lord himself. So that's the first thing, very basic. We just have to lay down that foundation stone. A second foundation stone that we have here is that human sexual interaction, which is here implied by reproduction, exists exclusively between male and female. Christians don't have to apologize for this. This is what we believe because this is what God's word teaches. We also believe that a man rose from the dead. We believe that God parted a sea. We believe that he made the world out of nothing. We believe that Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of a virgin. Our morality, our view of reality is not governed by a world lost in sin. It's governed by God's word. And it doesn't change with the culture. How many evangelicals are so quick to revisit and revisit and revisit away God's truth? You see it everywhere. This issue, though needing much compassion, much love and tenderness, much understanding that we're all sinners, is clear from God's word. Right after Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then we have reproduction, which implies sexual interaction. And then in chapter two, we get a lo- another little feature about it, and that is that it's only to be within the confines of the marriage covenant. So if you're sort of building a little house here, you're building a little house of human sexuality, you're trying to understand God's intentions, God's way, We start here in chapter one with this understanding that it's exclusive between a male and a female. That's just kind of what we get at the very beginning there. And then as you get into chapter two, we come to see that it is exclusive to male and female in a covenant of marriage before God. And we get the language there of one flesh and the language of covenant that we have there in Genesis chapter two, which gets played out throughout the rest of scripture God defines sex. God. Who defined day? Who defined night? Who defined heaven and seas and earth? God. And he is the one who defines human sexuality, as he does with everything else he makes. I want you to hear the creation language in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. It's interesting to me, That frequently when the issue of homosexuality is discussed, 
that uh, people will say, well, you know, here's some passages in the Old Testament that talk about it and, and, and so forth. And then they try to interpret away passages in 1 Corinthians 6 where it talks about homosexuals and others. They're not inheriting the kingdom of God. But I want you to hear Paul's words in Romans because it connects very closely to what we're looking at here with creation. It takes the issue of homosexuality, it takes homosexual behavior and tendency, and it puts that in light of creation. So Romans 1, 26 to 27 says this, for this reason God gave them up because of their idolatry, which is in all of our hearts. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, Homosexual passions are dishonorable passions. Listen to what it says. For their women exchanged natural relations. That's creation language. That which is in accordance with nature. Exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. You could put there, contrary to God's design. Contrary to God's wise and intelligent creative order contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What I want you to see there is that homosexuality, is something that twists God's creative design. It distorts it. It is contrary to it. It is against it. It perverts it. And we have that very early in the Bible, in Genesis 1, as we construct our Christian worldview, which tells us that issues of sexuality and gender are not secondary issues. Because if we're trying to understand who human beings are, if we're trying to understand the scope of Scripture, we find these truths at the very beginning of the Bible. These aren't secondary or tertiary issues. Let's all just love Jesus and forget about those discussions. It doesn't work that way. These are foundational to who we are, how we treat others, how we raise our children. So that's the second foundation stone. The third foundation stone that I want to lay out there for you that I think comes from this text here is that human reproduction is not animalistic in nature. What do I mean by that? It is not animalistic in nature. What I mean is this. The sexual interaction by which we reproduce is also a gift. We know that very much. As we see it here, that reproduction happens through sexual interaction between a male and a female in the covenant of marriage. That's a gift from the Lord. We know that. There is much dignity and, and honor in sexual interaction as we come to it here, understood rightly. But, but, we always engage sexually as image bearers. That's what it says in verses 26 to 27. We are made in the image of God. And here's what this means. This is so important. This is so important for our marriages. It's so important for the, the sexual interaction between a husband and a wife and how a husband views his wife and how a wife views her husband and how they, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, seek to please one another. This is so important. 
And what it tells us is that our sexual passions and behavior, because we are made in God's image, listen to this, because we are made with mind and morality in God's image, these passions of ours, which are a gift from God, which he has given to us, they're natural, they're not something to be hated. But these passions are to be governed by reason, morality, worship, and love. So let me just ask that question. Husband, wife, is human reproduction for you or sexuality within marriage for you? Is it animalistic? Is it simply an instinctive thing where there are passions that then get expressed and that's it? It's self-focused or is it something that you do as an image bearer? in an act of vertical worship to God, delighting in him and understanding what sexual relations point to? Is it something that is done in love as you relate to that person whom God has joined to you, one flesh? Are you serving that person or merely serving yourself? We always do this as image bearers. Do you see how that radically transforms everything? See, here's the thing. If you live in a culture that believes that we evolved from slime and evolved from apes, and that's it, there really is no distinction between human beings, homo sapiens sapiens. There's no distinction between us and everything else on the planet. Sex is merely biological. It's merely emotional. It's merely something you do, like eating and drinking. But if we are made, as Genesis tells us, in the image of God, it should be radically different. Sex between a husband and a wife who are Christians should be radically different than between a husband and wife who are not. Have you considered that? A fourth foundation stone that I want to lay out there for us is that human reproduction comes with the highest responsibility. What do I mean by this? Well, let me ask this question. What are we doing when we have children? Let's just ask foundational questions. That's what I love about Genesis 1. It, it forces us to ask foundational questions we forget to ask. What are we even doing when we reproduce and have children? And here's the first thing that we need to see. When we have children, we are filling the world with royal representatives. You see your children that way? That your children who come from you are royal representatives by virtue of the image of God that they bear. We are reproducing rulers, every person, not just those in a, in, a, uh, in a royal line in some country, but every single human being is by virtue of being a human being, a royal representative of God. Do you see your children that way? That is at the forefront of what we are doing when we reproduce, we are filling the world with those who will take dominion over it and represent God. You know what that tells us? We reproduce on God's behalf. Isn't that incredible? Have you ever thought about that? You don't reproduce for yourself. You reproduce for the Lord, the God who made everything, the God who gave you the ability to reproduce, the God who gives those precious children to you, we reproduce on his behalf because they're his representatives. They came through us, yes, 
but they belong to him and their function is with regard to him, not with regard to us. So praise God that they go, they grow up, they leave, the nest gets empty, they go out, they take dominion of the earth and they represent their king in the world. That's the desire we have for our kids. They are on his behalf, they are for his glory. You know what that tells us? That reproducing is kingdom work. Have you ever thought about that? Have you thought about the fact, mom, that though you're not doing X, Y, and Z, that you are doing kingdom work at home with those little kids as you feed them Cheerios? As you sweep up their mess? As you change their nappies or diapers? Nappies is a British way of saying that. It's stuck in our head. Uh, are, are you thinking about these things as you relate to your children that this is kingdom work. Of course it is, because you're raising those who will be little kings and little queens for the glory of God on the earth. That's what reproduction is. What about this? What are we doing when we have children? We are bringing into existence an immortal soul. I'll never forget when we had Jake in Scotland and our pastor came by our house and we were talking a little bit with him and he said, isn't it amazing? This is a little eternal soul that you're gonna raise. Boom, that's heavy, that's heavy, very heavy. Do you feel that weight, parent? that you are bringing into existence. We don't know how it works. There have been debates in church history. Does God give the soul at conception? Does the soul sort of come from reproduction? We don't know the answer to that question. It's a difficult question. We could, we, we could begin to try to answer it. I'm not interested in doing that right now, but here's what we know. When a, when a male and a female reproduce and there's conception, there's a soul, body, soul, together, human. That's incredible. We are bringing into existence an immortal soul, now listen to this, who will exist forever. This is hard. Who will exist forever, either in the presence of God or separated from him. Let me say it this way. I hesitate to say it this way because it's hard, but it needs to be said because the weightiness of parenthood is so important. We are raising a little one who will forever and ever and ever and ever either experience eternal bliss or eternal torment. This is the highest calling that you have. It's not your job. It's not your 401k. It's not your house. It's not your garden. This is the highest calling that we could possibly have as people who have children. We are raising up immortal souls for the glory of the king who are made by God for his purposes, not ours, not our emotional satisfaction, but for his glory, not for our own pride, but for his glory. Is this how you see parenting? We're all convicted of this, but this is God's way. I wanna just mention some final implications for us as we consider human reproduction. And I think this relates to our parenting. Showing. Do we show our children what it means to be image bearers? 
As we, do we model for our children? Think about it this way. Are we modeling for our children what it means to be one who bears the image of God? One who resembles God, represents God, one who relates to God. We model for them what it means to be human. Are we teaching our children who they are in the world? You know, the, the culture is gonna tell them. One of the things that Jake likes to watch is Power Rangers. He loves Power Rangers. And I'm always, I'm, I'm always watching to kind of see, okay, what's going on? What are they, what are they teaching? Because here's the thing. There may not be any curse words. There may not be any blood and gore. There may not be any uh, nudity scenes and so forth. But what is the worldview that is being taught to my child as he or she sits in front of this TV and listens to what seems to be the most innocent show, but is being infused with a way of viewing the world and a way of viewing reality. Parents must teach their children who they are, that our children are made in God's image. Are we telling them this? Are we telling them who they are before the Lord in the eyes of God, and finally, we must shepherd our children to govern their sexuality. Now, this is very important. Think about it this way. When children are two, three, four years old, we're not talking to them about their sexuality because that's later. That's much later. But here's what we can do. We can teach them patience and self-control because here's the thing. Children who do not govern their lives, who do not have self-control, who do not learn to wait for gratification when they're little, grow up to be sexual creatures. That's how God made them. God made them to, to be that as they grow up. And here's the thing. If they do not govern with worship and control and patience and love for neighbor, if they do not govern their passions when they're little, their passions for a toy then how will they govern their sexuality when they're 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and so forth? We must shepherd our children as sexual creatures to govern their passions for the glory of God and the good of themselves and their neighbor. So we learn from the end of Genesis 1 that as human beings, we resemble, represent, relate, and reproduce. But there's one more thing to consider before we move out of Genesis chapter 1. And that is we rely. We rely. We spent most of 2017 studying the Sermon on the Mount. And it was... Uh, a wonderful passage to go through to spend a year preaching the Sermon on the Mount, I have to tell you, was a tremendous blessing from God. And I hope that you uh, saw our time in the Sermon on the Mount as a blessing. I hope that it was edifying to you. But we spent all of that time in that passage. And there are a couple of places in particular in the Sermon on the Mount that I think are anticipated here in Genesis 1. At the end of chapter 6, Jesus tells his followers not to worry. What reasoning does Jesus give? At the end of Matthew 6, when he says, don't worry, he uses logic like this. God cares for the birds. You are more valuable than the birds. God will care for you. That's the logic that Jesus uses at the end of Matthew 6, and I think that goes back to Genesis 1. 
I would even say that as Jesus Christ is on the mountain there teaching his disciples, Jesus is seeing what he himself made there in Genesis chapter 1. The birds he made. Remember, God spoke through his word. The word became flesh. The birds he made. The flowers he made. And the people that he made in his own image. And at the beginning of chapter six, Jesus explains how the disciples are to pray. And what does he say? Our Father in heaven, dot, 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 on a little ways, give us this day our daily bread. I think all of these things go back to Genesis chapter one, verses 29 to 30, another passage. Let's read that. Genesis 1, 29 and 30. As we finish up this morning, let's look at these two verses. <coughs> And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Well, here we are told a number of things about God. Remember, the first sermon in Genesis was entitled, Starting with God. We know that all of the Bible is about God and at every stage we should come to know who is this triune God, this God whose spirit hovers over the waters, this God through whose word he creates all things. Who is this God? And here, there are some things that we can infer about God. He cares for man's body as well as his soul. Do you know that we're not going, when we die, that's not it? You know, I think a lot of evangelical Christians think heaven, you know, just die and go to heaven. My soul will be in heaven. There we go. I'm done. But no, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back and he is going to call out and raise up bodies from the dead and that those bodies will be reunited with their soul. God's intention for us is to live forever in body and soul. And so we, we get here a care for the body that goes all throughout the New Testament, I mean, all throughout the Bible, the Old and New Testaments goes all the way to the end of time when we will live in our bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. He gives generously, not sparingly. Look at the language, every plant, every tree. God didn't say, I'm gonna keep these plants over here for myself. You look at them and you're gonna want them. All of these plants over here, all of these trees over here, but no, those aren't for you. I'm just giving you these, this small little orchard That's not what God did. He gave them every plant, every tree. And of course, we know from chapter two, there's one tree, one tree that he cannot eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he gives generously, not sparingly. He gives perpetually, not temporarily. These are plants yielding seed and with seed in its fruit. So at the end of day three, God has so made the world already that the plants would just keep coming. That the plants will just keep coming so that Adam and Eve can just keep eating. And so their descendants with whom they will fill the earth, that they will just be able to keep eating. God has given them perpetually as their creator, not just for a moment. This is the God who presents himself to Adam and Eve in the garden. This is who God declares himself to be. He is good, giving, kind, generous. He provides, he cares. And here's the thing we need to see. It's only human beings who can recognize and appreciate the depths of God's generosity. God provides for the animals, but what wolf knows its maker? What bird 
knows its maker. Now, I believe built into these creatures is a sense of their maker. But they are not able to consider it. They are not able to reflect upon it. They are not able to reason about the glory of this one who made them. No, only one creature in all of the world is able to do this kind of thinking. Only one creature is able to hear God speak and reflect upon his goodness. Only one creature can respond to God's character and provisions. Only one. So, what are the implications for us? I want to just ask a few questions as we finish up this morning. Just a few questions to get into what we find here in these latter verses. The first is, are you noticing? Jesus in Matthew 6 is clear on that. Look, observe, look, observe. He uses the language of of observation multiple times in Matthew 6 to say, hey, worried person. And so, so this morning, worried person. You're here today. You're worried. You're anxious. Worried person. Are you looking? Are you observing? Noticing all the ways that God provides all the ways that he is reliable so that you can rely on him. You know, one of the ways that we come to know God is reliable most is through reading the Bible. You know, reading the Bible is not just something we need to do as Christians. It's something that we need to do in order to know God's character. Every time we open up the Bible, we should ask a very simple question. Who are you? God, Who are you? Show yourself to me that I might behold you and trust you, that I might depend on you, hope in you, rely upon you every day in every area of my life. Are you noticing? Are you depending? Are you enjoying? God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, are you enjoying the creation of God? Or are we too busy Too busy to even consider all the things that God has made, the works of his hands. You know, we read the Psalms, and the Psalms are constantly praising God for the works of his hands. Always. We read these Psalms so quickly. But what are they doing? What's the psalmist doing? His mind is always brought up to the work of God's hands all around him. Are we too blind? Too busy? Just pursuing until we fall over dead. Too busy to see and enjoy what God has graciously given us in his world. So let me ask this question, how do you eat? I'm not talking about your diet. I'm not talking about if you're gluten-free or whatever, or if you're vegan, or if you like steak. I'm not, not talking about that. But it is a question worth asking, how do you eat what God has provided? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That means that even a starburst can be enjoyed for the glory of God. Everything. Yeah, they're they're pretty good. Every little thing for the glory of God, whether you eat or whether you drink, for the glory of God. Is that the way in which you eat? Or are you just gobbling it up to get to the next thing? There's a way to live in God's world that is more human, more in accordance with Genesis 1. And there's a way to live in God's world that is like an animal, like a beast of the field with no reason and no God and no neighbor, just a beast, nose in the grass, gobbling it up, living until you die. There's a way to live 
that does not honor God at all. And in all of this relying on God to take care of our needs, I think there are several very important biblical truths that come clearly into focus. The first is our world has fallen. God is reliable and we can rely on him, but not without many hardships, not without many trials, not without many struggles. We live in a fallen world. God has redeemed us from a fallen world and one day he will redeem the world itself. But the truth is we still live in fallen bodies. We're gonna get sick. We're gonna die one way or another from something. You know, in the wake of Billy Graham's death, it's a reminder that even a man like Billy Graham who could live to be so old still dies. You read the genealogies in Genesis and he died and he died and he died. This world has fallen, it's broken, and we will suffer many things in this life, but we can rely on God in the midst of all of it. Our bread is Christ. All provisions point to the provision. Christ is the bread that feeds us forever. Christ is the bread that feeds us body and soul because one day we will live in body and soul forever with God. Christ is the one to whom we should look every bite we take. Think about this. What if you just started praying at home with your kids and every time you prayed over a meal, you, you prayed to God thanking him for the bread of heaven that has come down for men. That every meal at your home would even be itself a reminder of the true provision from God that he gave his son, who is the bread of heaven. And the final thing I think it tells us is that our future is perfect. One day we're gonna go back to Eden. We're gonna find ourselves there with no more pain, with no more want, no more sin, no more devil. And it will be perfect. And we hope in that but only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for reminding us today of who we are. We pray, God, that you would help us to implement these things, to take these implications from your word and to massage them into our lives. God, help us. We greatly need your grace to do that. Your wisdom, God. Help us as parents. God, how frail we feel and how imperfect we are. Help us to look to you and rely on you and know that we will never be perfect parents. But help us, Father, to do these things that your word calls us to do. Help us teach our kids who they are. Help us show them who they are. And help us shepherd them to be self-controlled, God-glorifying creatures. Father, help us, we pray. We need you greatly. In this time, as we conclude our service, would you just prick our hearts? Would you show us your gospel through the Lord's Supper? And would you show us what we need to do now that we've heard your word? In Jesus' name, amen.